Hi, I'm Kathy Clabby, Associate Editor at American Scientist Magazine. Welcome to our Pizza Lunch Podcast, where we interview scientists who give lectures at our North Carolina headquarters. Misha Angrist is a geneticist, ethicist, and writer at Duke University. Angrist was the fourth subject in the Personal Genome Project at Harvard. His entire genome is now a public document. He wrote a book about his experience titled, Here is a Human Being. I began by asking Angrist what inspired him to join the Personal Genome Project. So I trained as a genetic counselor and worked with families that had genetic diseases. And I always felt that I was at arm's length from them. And until my lab, uh, the lab that I trained in, became a certified clinical lab, we could not give results back to families. And that always stuck in my craw. And looking at one's own genes was just something that scientists never did or almost never did. So when the Personal Genome Project came along and not only said, it's not tacky, but we want you, and if you're trained in genetics and understand genetics, then we really want you, I just thought, oh, well, this is great. I thought, finally, this divide between the scientist and the person he or she is studying is starting to collapse, and that was very appealing to me. Were your goals in step with the project's goals, or were they wider than the project's goals? And then once you got involved with the project, did you find that your interests diverged further or they were more closely aligned? I think the project's goals all along were to create this pipeline, create this infrastructure of real live human beings who understood the risks, who were willing to donate samples and jump through all of the hoops and to collect as much information about them as possible. For me, uh, my goals were much more about simply taking notice of everything I could and putting it into the book. So I was wondering, when you started the project, what kind of ethical issues you were interested in, and then after participating, if new ones emerge for you? I think the most vexing for me at the time was what, if anything, I should disclose to my daughters. And this was crystallized by my risk for hereditary breast cancer or for transmitting that gene since my mother had early onset breast cancer. And this is something that I stewed over. And this is something that the Personal Genome Project and the people who run it sort of challenged me and said, well, you're saying that if you are found to carry one of these mutations, you would want to redact it, because I was considering that. And they were simply saying, well, today it's breast cancer, tomorrow it's going to be something else. Do, Do you really want to do this? My concern the whole time was not really that my daughter shouldn't find out. It was that 
my wife and I wanted them to find out anything we had to say from us and not from the Internet. Um, and so when you make something public and it's a rare enough event that people are presumably paying attention, then you ask yourself about what the possible repercussions are. And, of course, the answer is you you don't know. You can't predict those sorts of things. Can you um, explain what aspects of the personal genome project you find preferable to more traditional genomics research in terms of not just the amount of information that a donor gets, but the control um, a donor has over his or her genomic information? Yes. So, number one, I wouldn't minimize the quantity of information. And I say that not as a participant who is waiting by the mailbox or the computer to get all of my data back. For me, both as a scientist and as a sort of self-styled humanities person, this notion that everything is fair game as far as biology and environment, to me, that's, that's very exciting. As far as control goes, I suppose you could argue that on the one hand, I'm relinquishing control by making everything public. So I'm incurring some risk that someone is going to plant my DNA at a crime scene or that I could learn that my nominal father is not my biological father, all that sort of stuff. But the benefit is that any scientist can have access to that data and I am helping to free that person, presumably, from having to go through the Institutional Review Board and having to worry about protecting my anonymity and knowing that they can come back to me if they want to know something about my phenotype, if they are interested in some other aspect of my biology. We have said that we are receptive to this that we want to cut out the middleman. After you were done with the process, what information was most useful to you personally, aside from your work as a scholar, but just as a dad, as a person, as a man your age? I would say useful, if not terribly surprising. So I have a family history of heart disease, and my genome is very consonant with that. And the drug response information, that is genetic variation that predicts how someone responds to this or that drug. I'm not on a blood thinner, but if I ever am, I think I can bypass a lot of the trial and error and I am on an antidepressant, and it works very well. And my genome suggests, um, at least to a limited extent, that that's not unexpected. 
So it's mostly uh, reassurance, stuff I might need on a rainy day, perhaps. And then the ancestry stuff is just cool. Tell us more about the ancestry information you, you learned from your genome. Well, it, it's interesting. I actually um, I helped my colleague David Goldstein edit his book, Jacob's Legacy, about Jewish genetics. There is a signature that is associated with the Levites. Um, so the Levites were sort of the second-class priests of ancient times. So, you know, the oral history of my father's family is that we were Levites. It doesn't mean a huge amount for my personal identity, but I do find it interesting and kind of cool that my DNA suggests that I am similar to other people who identify as Levites. One of the things that's most interesting about your reflections about this experience is your observations and your efforts to teach people about this kind of open access movement, how people are doing unexpected things because they can get access to this less expensive genomic sequencing. Um, Are you excited about that? Do you think it's going to go in ways we can't predict? I am excited about it. I'm not completely naive to think that it's it's not possible to get into trouble playing around with one's own biology. I'm still fairly convinced that the net effect will be positive. I still go to my daughter's elementary school every year with um, dish soap and table salt and rubbing alcohol. We rinse our mouths with salt water and we lice those cells with dish soap, and we precipitate our DNA from solution with rubbing alcohol, and that's something that anyone can do. And, you know, it's quite possible that I'm breaking some rule by doing that. My response is, so be it. I'm prepared to be a martyr for that cause because I think uh, it's so important and we, no one would deny that we have fallen behind in science education and genetics education and there's plenty of data to back that up. So we have this huge burden to overcome. There's a famous geneticist named David Botstein at Princeton who's tried to remake the undergraduate science curriculum. And he says something like, you know, it shouldn't be like a fraternity hazing exercise where we say, if you stand in a bathtub full of cold water for 12 hours, then you'll get to learn something cool. We need, in my opinion, sort of a head start project for genetics. And we need to start talking to kids about it at a very young age. Misha, thank you so much for coming to speak with us. Your thoughts about this are absolutely fascinating, and we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kathy. It is always my pleasure. This American Scientist Pizza Lunch podcast was produced by Elsa Youngstead and Kathy Clabby, associate editors of American Scientist magazine. The magazine is published by Sigma Xi. 
the Scientific Research Society.